0: Did God commit genocide? Now, a lot of people take offense to the fact that God commanded Israel to absolutely annihilate the city of Jericho and its inhabitants. Now, a lot of people who stirred this conversation are people who are of the atheist community, those who are anti-God and they use it kind of as rhetoric against god and they kind of make it out to be that he's this warmongering bloodthirsty you know agent in the sky and so they they diffuse and they they make it out to be Um, This idea of genocide, and they say, well, I thought that, you know, God was supposed to be a God of mercy and compassion and love, and they use this argument to kind of, uh, it's it's actually ironic, a a lot of people in the atheist community, they use it to kind of, um, uh, to discourage, you know, the God that we believe in, while at the same time saying that they don't believe that there's a God. It's really, it's really a lot of irony there, and so tonight what I want to do is I kind of want to talk about the events that happened at Jericho and you remember the story where the people of Israel go and God commands them to march around the city and they give the shout and the walls fall and they go in and invade, but there is there is far more context to this story. Uh, that will give us a better understanding and an idea as to whether or not God actually committed genocide in this. So what I want to do is I want to unpack the, the the bigger story for a few minutes. And to do that, I want to read three different portions of Scripture to kind of help set the context for where we're going tonight. Okay, the first is found in Deuteronomy chapter 7. The Bible says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land, the promised land, you are entering to possess and drive out before you many nations, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, you must destroy them totally, okay? So God says this to the people of Israel when they're in the wilderness, okay? So this is um, a generation before. This is, you know, decades beforehand. God says, when you finally come into the promised land, you're going to go in. There are inhabitants there, and you're going to go in, and you're going to destroy them completely, okay? Well, as the time approaches and the people of Israel, they cross into the promised land, this is the command that the Lord gives in Joshua chapter 6, or this is what actually happened the bible says that israel devoted the city to the lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it men and women young and old cattle sheep and donkeys joshua 10:40 says so joshua subdued the whole region including the hill country the negev the western foothills and the mountain slopes together with all their kings He left no survivors. He totally destroyed all that breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, had commanded. Now that, again, it's difficult, and we're going to get into the nuances of it. But this is the text. This is what Scripture says God commanded them to do, and they carried out the command of God. Okay, so the question that we want to tackle first is simply this were there missteps in this whole process? So the first question is, did scripture get it wrong? Okay, so what we read here, what we just read here, is this like a misinterpretation of scripture? There's some people, some scholars actually, that believe Joshua didn't completely wipe out Jericho. It was just hyperbole. So basically, uh, it was like, you know, if you've ever, uh, you know, your favorite football team, they beat another team. Um, when you leave the game, you say, we annihilated every player on that field. Well, that doesn't mean you actually killed every person on that field or your team killed every person on that field. What they're saying is we beat them really, really badly, right? And so there are some people that believe that uh, Joshua, when he's writing this, that he destroyed every, everyone completely, all that breed, is that he was just exaggerating. He was making a statement that he had he had done this thing. There is very little evidence to support this theory, okay? There is almost no concrete evidence uh, to support this. The Bible says, just as God commanded, he did this thing, okay? There are other people that believe the phrase, just as God commanded, was added later to the text to justify what the children of Israel had done, okay? Once again, there's zero evidence of this. Jesus could have corrected the text. Paul could have corrected the text. Any of the prophets, nowhere in the Old Testament, nowhere in the New Testament, uh, is this idea that this was added in order to justify the actions of the people. They were being obedient to what God had commanded them to do. If we suggest... That either, you know, Joseph or excuse me, Joshua was, you know, being exaggerating or whether we believe that, you know, uh, uh, just as God commanded was added to the Bible later to suggest that is to believe that the Bible is not inerrant is to believe that the Bible is, contains errors and we do not believe that. We believe that God's word is exactly perfect uh, in the way that, that he wanted it. So um, the question, um, did scripture get it wrong or did Joshua get it wrong? And our reply would be, no, they didn't get it wrong. The text says what it says and it means what it says, okay? The second question we ask ourselves is, well, if Joshua didn't get it wrong and these events actually happened, did God get it wrong? So in other words, was God just in like a really foul mood or was he just having a fit in an uncontrolled moment and so he sends the people of Israel to go destroy them? Was he racist against you know, the, the Amorites and the people who lived in Jericho? To suggest this is to suggest that God is unjust. Um, Richard Dawkins, one of the, the most famous you know atheist, debaters uh, against the God of the Bible, Uh, I think I I wrote it in your notes. I'm not going to justify it by reading it. I probably shouldn't even put it in your notes. But he builds this case against the God of the Old Testament, and he's saying, you know, all of these things, like I said earlier, that God is just a homophobic ethnic cleanser and all of these types of things. For us to suggest that God got this wrong and he commanded the people of Israel to destroy Jericho and they did it, but God was wrong in that, is to come into alignment with a man like Richard Dawkins, okay? So we do not believe that God got it wrong or has ever gotten it wrong or will ever get it wrong, okay? He is perfect in all of his ways and all that he does. So did scripture get it wrong? No. Did God get it wrong? No did God evolve from the Old Testament to Jesus in the New Testament? Um, There are a lot of people that see actions where God commands, you know, the, the city of Jericho to be destroyed, every living thing on it. And then they measure that action against the life of Jesus. And they say, well, Jesus was filled with compassion and tolerance and acceptance and love. And what they are basically saying is that the God of the Old Testament, like he matured or he evolved into someone who was more patient and more loving and more kind and more gracious and more compassionate. This is a heresy to believe that the God of the Old Testament is somehow different from the God of the New Testament. Or Jesus in the New Testament is greater than the God of the Old Testament. Jesus is God. When you see these events unfold, Jesus, as part of the triune God, he is in agreement with all that's unfolding here, okay? Um, what, what people have done is we have taken the same approach that Thomas Jefferson took. Um, this is, there is a, an edition of the Bible. I wouldn't even call it a translation. I probably wouldn't even call it the Bible. There is a version of the Bible that's called the Thomas, uh, Thomas Jefferson Bible, and basically, this is what he did. He took the, the holy text, the Old and the New Testament, and he took a, a scalpel. He cut out the portions of the scripture that he liked, and he put them, crafted them into a new Bible, and he left all the things that he didn't like in the old Bible. He created a new version of God by ripping out the text in the scripture, That is a a fallacy. That is one of those things that we can never be guilty of. The text is the text and it is what God intended for us to understand. And even when we don't like things or even when we don't understand things, we must be submitted to the authority of the scripture and its influence over us. Hebrews says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He has not evolved. He has not become more gracious. He has not become more kind. He has always been gracious and always become kind. To suggest that Christ doesn't possess the same wrath as the God of the Old Testament is intellectually dishonest, okay? Let me explain this for a moment. In the Old Testament, we see the judgment of God fall a lot of different times, right? We we see a lot of different instances. But you're also talking about like 4,000 years of human history where God is executing certain things. 4,000 years, okay? So we see a lot more of God's judgment um, than we may see in the New Testament, But let me remind you, the New Testament deals with less than 100 years of human history, right? It's like it's, you know, the percentages is just crazy. But even in the New Testament, we see Jesus, we see God from heaven continue to execute judgment and wrath on those who are rebellious. Jesus, in his earthly life, he's tolerant, accepting, and all this kind of thing. But Jesus, at a certain point, he sits in a corner, he weaves together a whip, he flips over some tables, and he whips people out of the temple, okay? That is a type of judgment that the Son of God executed in his earthly life. Uh, Herod in the book of Acts, the Bible says that uh, King Herod refused to give glory to God, and so an angel of the Lord struck Herod and gave him worms that ate him from the inside out. That was a judgment from God. Ananias and Sapphira, they, were, they lied to the Holy Spirit is what uh, Peter said. And the Bible says that when they lied to the Holy Spirit, that God struck them dead. This was a judgment from God. The book of Revelation is all about Jesus Christ returning to judge the living and the dead. And so to say that you know, the God of the New Testament is somehow, you know, less, you know, filled with justice than the God of the Old Testament, that is intellectually dishonest. If you truly look at the percentages and what God actually does in these accounts, it is uh, something, it's a heresy to say that God has evolved into something. So did the text get it wrong? No. Did God get it wrong? No. Did God evolve into something different? No. God is who he is. And for us to understand this this paradox of the the mercy of God and the justice of God, uh, I want to take the next few minutes just to kind of break these two ideas down. Specifically, what I want to do is I want to focus on the events that happened at Jericho when God commanded them to to slaughter every living thing. And I want to walk through this and walk through the nature of God. The first thing I want to talk about here for a moment is that the God of the Bible is perfectly merciful. Okay. The most quoted scripture in the Hebrew Bible focuses on the character of who God is. The first time it's spoken of is Exodus 34 6. That's what the Bible says. And God passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. This is the most quoted description of God in the Old Testament Bible, okay? So the idea is that, yes, God did send judgment to Jericho, but God didn't send judgment until his mercy was exhausted, Okay, listen to what the Bible says in Genesis 15. This is God prophetically speaking to Abraham. He says, in the fourth generation, or approximately 400 years, your descendants will come back here to the promised land. For the sin of the Amorites, or the people of Jericho, has not yet reached its full measure. So this is what the Lord is saying to Abraham. He's saying these people that have inhabited the land of the people of God, They are a wicked, they are a a people who are full of wickedness. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to give them time to turn to the living God. And I'm going to give them up to 400 years of time before I bring judgment to them because the measure of their sinfulness and wickedness has not reached the point where my mercy is exhausted. And so what God is saying, he's saying, I'm going to give them every benefit of the doubt. I'm going to give them every chance. But there is a point where the mercy of God ends and the judgment of God begins. And so God said, I am going to give them up to 400 years. Israel, listen to me say this. Israel would become the hammer of God against these wicked people. God would use the people of Israel as an instrument of destruction. But listen to me say this. Israel was captive in Egypt for how long? 400 years. The people of God suffered for four centuries because God was being merciful to a wicked and an evil people, allowing them time to repent. At a certain point when his mercy had been exhausted, he released his people as the hammer of God against them. And then he executed judgment. But again, it wasn't until his mercy had been exhausted. God will allow wickedness to metastasize so that the destructive nature can be clear to everybody, right? So this is why in Sodom and Gomorrah, the mercy of God had been extinguished and God sent judgment upon them because everybody in the surrounding area, it was clear to them that this was a wicked and a vile city right? Twin cities. Modern America, if we are not careful, are going to slide into this category where God allows the wickedness of our nation to metastasize and to grow. And listen to me say this, he's doing it not only to, to, to allow his mercy to, to uh, be exhausted, but God is doing it so that when the judgment of God comes, we can look and we can say, we deserve this. Right, if, if you are a Bible-believing Christian, and you see our nation in the state of wickedness and evil and vile rebellion that we're in, and you do not believe that we deserve the judgment of God, I don't know what to say. It has become so clear that our nation has given its soul to wickedness. Now we pray and we seek God for revival and awakening and repentance and renewal. And I believe God can do it. He did it with Israel a dozen times. God can surely do it with America. But my point is this, is that if we're not careful, we're going to slip into this place where destruction is on the brink, but it's gonna be clear to all of us that we deserve this okay, if it ever comes to that point. But I need us to understand this, that even if judgment does come, it is tethered to the mercy of God. Judgment never comes before mercy. Mercy is always extinguished before judgment comes. The people of Cana had hundreds of years to turn to the Lord in repentance, decades, centuries to turn to the Lord. And this is what we find in Joshua chapter six. This is so interesting. Okay. You remember when the two spies, they go into Jericho and they find this woman. She's a prostitute. Her name's Rahab. She saves them. She rescues them so that they can survive from the people that are looking for them. And she releases them to go and all this kind of thing. This is what she says in Joshua chapter six, and she's talking to the spies. She says, we know all that the Lord God has done with the people of Israel. We know that God miraculously delivered you from Egypt and how he delivered you through the sea and through Pharaoh. And we know, this is what the the prostitute is saying. She's saying, the people of Jericho, we know that God is sending you to annihilate us. And listen to what she says. And fear has captured our hearts. So in other words, what she's saying She's saying, these people that live in Jericho, they're not ignorant and they're not innocent of what's about to happen. They know what's gonna happen. Fear has gripped their heart, but they still continue to walk in unrepentant sin. And so because of their rebellion, God does judge them, but God was also merciful and he saved some. He saved the prostitute and her entire family. God is merciful even as he executes judgment, but we have to understand that he, is, he will never execute judgment until his mercy has been extinguished, okay? So he's perfectly merciful, okay? The more difficult thing for us to grasp, because we love the idea that he's perfectly merciful, is that God is also perfectly just, Okay? I read the first portion of Exodus 34 that describes the the nature and the character of God, okay? I'm going to read it again, but I'm going to add verse 7 at the end, okay? This is what scripture says. And God passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. And this is verse 7 yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished, okay? So in other words, I, I, would, I would add the, the idea of a person who's guilty, a person who is unrepentant. So in other words, this is what I believe the text is saying is that God will not leave the unrepentant unpunished. At a certain point, justice must be served against sin, Okay. Now again, that verse that I just read, that entire verse, it talks about the merciful nature of God. Again and again and again, the slow and uh, you know, the slow to anger, abounding and stuff, all, all this stuff, all this stuff. But then at the very end, it also talks about the justice that God possesses. These two verses are the most descriptive terms that the Old Testament Bible describes in the Lord our God. Because God is perfectly just, He had to execute judgment against the people of Jericho. And let me explain to you why. In the book of Leviticus chapter 18, the Bible goes through and God says that you, he's talking to Israel and he's saying, you shall not commit the sins that the people, the Amorites, the people of Jericho, all these people are committing. And he goes through this litany of all these different things that were done. These are the things that we know that Jericho was a part of. They were a part of sorcery. They were a part of religious prostitution where they would have prostitutes that would fill uh, the temple of Baal and they would have men who would have intercourse with these women and they would do so expecting all of these things. It was almost as a, a sacrificial moment, but these women were prostitutes in a supposed temple. These people were guilty of child sacrifice to the God of Moloch. They would literally sacrifice their young so that they believed that the god Moloch would bless their lives financially with increase. These were people who were having incestual relationships. They were guilty of bestiality with animals, and they were guilty of homosexual activity within. And for 400 years, these people, God allowed them the opportunity to repent, and they refused to. Sam Storm says this about the text that we're reading about God sending the people to annihilate the, the people of Jericho. This is what Sam Storm says. He says, this text and others like it is it bothers us for one fundamental reason. We have virtually no grasp of the holiness of God or the sinfulness of humanity. Listen to me say this. These people are sacrificing, they are shedding the blood of their own offspring, and they are having sexual relationship with their children. I think that our sensitivities in Western culture have gotten us to a place where we love this idea of compassion and mercy, and tolerance, but my question is this, don't we also want evil to come to an end? If we want this type of evil to come to an end, how could we contend with the judgment of God against such things? Listen, God cannot allow wickedness to go unjudged for this reason. He is holy we do not understand the judgments of God because we are not holy. And and I I mean that in in the sense of God being holy in, in his perfection. We're holy, we're made holy saints in Christ, but it's not the same type of holiness that God possesses. I think it's important for us to understand that because people are not holy and don't have the perspective of God, we tolerate sin and wickedness and vileness, and we would let it continue. But, but here's the caveat. We would let it continue as long as it doesn't touch our lives. But the moment that it touches our lives, we want justice and we want it now. But when we look at wickedness that's going on on a mass scale around the world with other people, and we consider the fact that God may bring judgment to them, all of a sudden our compassion and our sensitivities want to chime in. But my question is this, if those same things that were happening to their children were happening to our children, would we not beckon the judgment of God against this wickedness? Right. But we've gotten to a place where we have allowed our sensitivities and this idea of compassion and tolerance to rule the day when we should be a people who are crying out for the holiness of God. But here's the thing. What we found ourselves in a situation is this, is that we have immoral people who have become the moral judge of God, the almighty. And friends, that is a dangerous, dangerous place to find ourselves When we become the judge of God, there's something wrong with this picture and it's not wrong on God's side. Justice is part of the divine nature of who God is, right? All throughout the scripture, we see God bring justice, but this is very, very important that that I want us to understand. Without fail, not only is the mercy of God extinguished before judgment comes, but God always has a purpose in his judgment. And oftentimes through his judgment is to bring salvation. If you think about the judgment of God that fell on Jesus Christ as he was on the cross, that judgment fell on him, but it was to secure our freedom. If you consider the flood of Noah that came and destroyed much of the earth and most of the inhabitants of the earth. It was to give us a rebirth as humanity because we have been so self-destructive. If you consider all of these different types of things, you understand that justice is a part, a divine part of the nature of God, but it's not something that's bad. It is the pure fire, the cleansing that brings purity to us and to the world. And we've got to be a people that not only understand the kindness of God, but also, as Paul would say, the severity of God. We have created a God who is a tame version of God. He's passive. He's weak. He doesn't really do all these things. Listen to me. God is none of those things. God, if there is any tolerance of unrepentant sin, it's simple restraint and mercy on behalf of a benevolent God. Even when you look at the book of Revelation, as the judgments of God begin to fall on the wickedness of humanity. Now listen to me say this. These are people that are literally, they understand at a certain point that God is the one who's judging them. And they literally stand on the heels and they shake their fist in anger towards God, knowing that he is the one who's judging them right? That's the type of people we're dealing with. But even in the book of Revelation, if you give a thorough study of this, this is what you see. You see a wave of God's judgment come and then a reprieve, an allowance for people to repent and turn their faith to Christ. And then you see another wave of more intense judgment come and then there's a reprieve. And God is allowing people to come to repentance. And then there's another wave and another wave and it intensifies. But throughout every wave of the judgment of God, you see pockets of mercy where he is willing that none should perish, but all come to repentance. So even in the justice of God, you find mercy. It's a beautiful thing that we find when we really study who the character and the nature of God is. I think, to wrap this up, the difficulty that most of us had with a passage like the passage of Jericho is when the Bible says you need to destroy the women, the men, the children, and the elderly. And I think probably where we get the most caught up is when we say the killing of women who are combatant usually and children that we would consider to be innocent, and I understand that, and, and I, I, you know, my humanness, I struggle with that also. Um, but but I need us to understand this, and I don't say this to be harsh or to be dismissive or anything like that. But I think it's important for us to understand that God holds complete rights over life and death. He is God, and He owes us nothing. He does not owe us another breath, and he did not owe these wicked people even that. The fact that God has allowed us to continue to live outside of the garden where he said, look, when you eat of this fruit on that day, you will die. God was merciful, and he extended the nature of human life. But the idea that we need to apologize for how God has chosen to act is reprehensible. We are a people that must understand that he is trusted because he is a righteous judge. Time and time again, the scripture says that the Lord is righteous in everything that he does. He will do right every single time. And we, as his children, need not to find ourselves trying to apologize for the things that other people don't understand. We need to be a people who even when we don't understand, we trust that he will never do wrong. It is outside of his capacity to do evil. It is outside of his being to do wrong. And he possesses the rights of life and death over all of us. So the idea that God committed genocide, first of all, technically, in technical terms, genocide is when a people group is eliminated based on their race or ethnicity okay and that is not why these people were destroyed god did eliminate an entire people group and an entire city but it wasn't based on racial issues or ethnicity it was based on their unrepentant sin as americans we should take note of these moments that we find throughout scripture and we need to be very serious about our repentance. Not only individually, listen to me say this, I I love that our church so focuses on larger issues that are at stake, but we need to be a people that repent personally, but we need to repent on behalf of our nation for the sins of our nation. Not only the sins of omission, but the sins of commission. This coming Sunday is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday and it's gonna be a powerful day and we're gonna talk about the value of life and honor And I I think that, that we need to continue to be a people that take the idea of repentance very, very seriously, that God may be merciful, that we might not extinguish or exhaust his mercy. Amen? Amen.